0: Welcome to Korean Context, a behind-the-scenes conversation with the scholars, artists and opinion makers that bridge our two worlds. My name's Chad O'Carroll and I'll be your host today. In this episode we spoke to B.R. Myers, author of The Cleanest Race and regular contributor to The New York Times, Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic. Born in South Africa and having received his M.A. in Soviet Studies just in time for the fall of the Berlin Wall, Myers went on to earn a Ph.D. in North Korean Literature in the early 1990s. Now based in South Korea, Myers is an Associate Professor of International Studies at Dongseo University in Pusan. From his book, The Cleanest Race, Meyer stands out from the rest for arguing that North Korea's political system is based neither on communism or Stalinism, and that attempts to understand North Korea as a Confucian patriarchy operating within a Cold War framework are simply misguided. His views have received mixed opinions from the think tank orthodoxy. While some regard his outlook as a fresh approach to the topic, Others have rebutted his interpretation of North Korea as a National Socialist country and continue to view it through the lens of Cold War politics. Two years on from the publication of his book, I started the interview by asking Myers about his feelings on the NK Watcher community's reception to his work and why he thought some people continue to find it so difficult to accept his arguments.
1: Well, the consensus in the greater American Pyongyang-watching community, by which I mean... Everyone from academics to think tank types to people at the relevant NGOs and government officials is that North Korea is a failed communist state and it must be dealt with accordingly. And um, I had always, I had really found that baffling, really, ever since the proclamation of a military first policy in the mid 1990s, because here you have a military first regime by its own avowal. Uh, with an ideology of racial supremacism and emotionalism, a regime which never mentions communism, which a few months ago uh, took the final step of taking down uh, you know, the portraits of, of Marx and Lenin from Kim Il-sung Square. And you have American observers across the political spectrum, from Bruce Cummings on the left to Victor Cha on the right, referring to it as um, a communist state, and usually, therefore, as a failed communist state, a, a demotivated country that's sort of muddling along by dint of sheer repression Uh, and uh, i i wrote the uh, cleanest race about that and i did i I encountered sort of a a strange uh, ambivalence because on the one hand i received almost exclusively positive remarks about the book um, from journalists and diplomats and so on and yet at the same time i have noticed no difference at all either in press reporting on north korea or in academic uh, work on North Korea, which continues to act uh, not only as if my own book had never been published, but as if North Korea had never really proclaimed the military first policy. At the same time, though, people realize deep down that North Korea is not behaving like that sort of a country at all. You've got the disregard for world conventions, you've got the drug trade, sporadic attacks on South Korea. Um, This country is not behaving like a failed communist state. So to compensate for the cognitive dissonance, Washington nourishes the fantasy of a hawk-dove struggle in North Korea. Now, I'm sure, Chad, you know how this runs. You know, Pyongyang is full of pragmatists who want peace and reform, but those meanies in the North Korean army keep sabotaging things. Now, there's no evidence for this. Zero. Um, But the fantasy lives on and is is kept alive on a monthly basis by the New York Times because uh, Americans really can't handle the... uh, the, the truth, the enormity of the truth, which does not give room for any optimism at all. Um, you see, to sustain hope for a diplomatic approach to the North Korean problem, uh, you need the model of a failed communist state. A, a U.S. diplomat um, said to me a few months ago here in Korea, you know, Brian, your take on North Korea is, is not that much use to us because it's unactionable. In other words, in other words, what I'm saying about North Korea can't be true because it doesn't give the State Department enough work to do. Um So you have an enormous bureaucratic resistance to acknowledging the increasingly obvious fact that North Korea is what it says it is, namely a military first state. And we have the example of other military first states in history, namely Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, fascist Italy, that these states need a war atmosphere to survive. And and we all know what the implications of that are not just for negotiations, but also for the prospects of of economic uh, help, economic support. Uh, But, of course, the NGOs and NPOs and think tanks in D.C. are the same. Uh, The think tanks in D.C. are, of course, uh, earning a lot of money uh, by, by consulting with the U.S. government. For all these people to get their salaries and their North Korea projects and their North Korea research trips financed, people need to convince sponsors that their North Korea work is going to make a difference, it's going to further the cause of peace, in the same way that these outreaches did with the failed communist states. So North Korea can shout, military first, until it's blue in the face. It can preach uh, racial hatred as, as explicitly as it likes. And Washington will still regard it as an economy first state, because that kind of a state is much, de- much easier for the economy first United States to deal with. So to get back to your question, two years on, I, I feel gratified by the, the positive remarks I've received I feel um, uh, confirmed in my view of North Korea, not just by the uh, sinking of the Chan'an, but by the attack on yeonpyeong as well. And at the same time, my exasperation is growing at the refusal of of, uh, the Pyongyang-watching community uh, to realize what kind of a country they're dealing with.
0: You've mentioned in the past uh, that anti-Americanism is one of the uh, main legitimizing factors for the North Korean regime. What extent do you still believe this is true? Is it really the sole reason, or do you think there are any others now that might have come to the fore?
1: Well, you can't really separate anti-Americanism from nationalism. Um, Anthropologists, social anthropologists will tell you that you cannot have racial pride without an inferior other, uh, without uh, some racial enemy that has to be demonized. Now, one mistake that is often made, um, especially by Europeans, for example, when they look at North Korea, is to assume that uh, North Korea's problem is exclusively with the United States or perhaps with Japan as well. They don't really realize that when you consider yourself to be um, racially uh, superior or to be morally superior to the whole world um, by dint of your racial purity, then everybody really is the other for the North Koreans which is why there's really no love lost between Pyongyang and Beijing either. Um, So I wouldn't say that, you know, uh, anti-Americanism is not the be-all and end-all of North Korea's ideology, but at the same time, it's absolutely indispensable because North Korea cannot normalize relations with the United States. It cannot make even significant concessions to the United States without losing all reason to exist and devolving into a poor man's version of South Korea which is not politically viable. And uh, we may not realize that that's an impossible uh, thing for the North Koreans to consider, but the North Koreans realize that it is.
0: So you say the uh, the, the State Department, uh, your, or sorry, your conversations with, uh, you know, State Department officials, they say they can't action anything on North Korea. But from what you're saying, would Wouldn't it be possible for one action to be to call North Korea's bluff, remove that uh, that nub of their existence by saying, look, we're going to shower you with aid. We're going to we want an embassy there. We want a peace treaty. Let's let bygones be bygones and remove, you know, all uh, military threat. Would that not by default remove one of the main drivers behind North Korea's legitimacy?
1: Well, let's keep in mind that uh, that um, North Korean propaganda um, tends to focus not so much on the present as on the past. As far as the North Koreans are concerned, um, we have committed grievous crimes on the peninsula, which must be avenged. And um, this is something that the North Korean propaganda emphasis, emphasizes on the, on the monthly basis. Of course, the yearly high point of the anti-Americanism is always like June and July. Um, so... And and Kim Jong-il, of course, is frequently quoted even now as having said that Korea and the United States cannot share the same sky. Now, we have showered them with aid. Let's remember that in the late 1990s, North Korea was the main recipient of American aid uh, in Asia. And at the same time, um, anti-American propaganda was, was, was was reaching a zenith, really. Um, you, if you look back on, for example, when the 6 Party talks in, uh, opened up in August 2003, you had a very sharp rise in anti-American propaganda. So it's, it's very uh, easy, I think, to draw the conclusion that uh, North Korea actually fears an improvement in, in relations. And when I say North Korea, I don't mean the hawks in the military and that the pragmatists just can't wait for it to happen. The same people who are now approving of economic reform in North Korea are the same people who, who sank the Chonan and attacked uh, Yunpyang Island. Now, we could make this enormous leap of faith and give the North Koreans everything they want in order to prove our point, but you don't prove a point with nationalists. You cannot make nationalists happy. Um, they will have no difficulty um, continuing to demand things and pushing us to, to uh, in, into a position where we simply cannot accept their demands. What they want more than anything else, of course, is for the American troops to withdraw. Now we could do that as an experiment in order to cause their uh, to call their bluff, but I think it will be a very risky experiment to make.
0: In John Everard's new book, uh, Only Beautiful Please, he emphasizes the extreme old age of the core constituents within the Korean Workers' Party. Do you think as these folks start to die off in a few years that we might start to see less of a focus on military-first policies as the younger generations get promoted within the regime?
1: I, I think it might, if the, uh, if the younger generation is stupid enough to commit political suicide, they might consider stepping off of that military-first pedestal and reinventing themselves as, as a poor man's version of South Korea. It would be wonderful for us if they were to do that, but I don't think they're that stupid. What we are going to see and what we're already seeing is a greater willingness to, uh, to reform the economy. Now, it's important to keep in mind that North Korea was never ideologically committed to a centralized economy. In other words, um, we know from East European diplomatic archives that Kim Il-sung had very little interest in economic matters. He explicitly told Erich Honecker, the East German leader, that he did not want his people to live too well because when they lived too, too well, they got lazy um, and, and, and they became harder to deal with. So it, it's, to me, uh, it, it seems more than likely that the, they only established that um, centralized economy in the first place in order to become part of the East Bloc and to secure a steady flow of political, economic and military aid from the soviet union and from china had they not done so that country would have collapsed they also needed to preserve a certain distinctiveness um, vis-a-vis south korea because you know this is just a, a much smaller part of the peninsula in population terms if they were going to go the same route as south korea they would have been absorbed very quickly um, of course as soon as the east bloc collapsed um north korea had no more need for a centralized economy Uh, and proclaimed the military-first policy. This military-first policy was not proclaimed as a result of any perceived increase in the American threat. Remember, this was the mid-1990s. These were the Clinton days. The the relationship between Pyongyang and Washington had never been better. The American aid money was flowing in when they shifted to the military-first policy. The whole reason for that was to take the ideology, so to speak, out of um, the economic sphere, to make it possible for people to dismantle that Um, centralized economy without at the same time dismantling the authority of the state so what you now have in North Korea even though everybody keeps trying to compare North Korea to China and Vietnam the situation you have right now is much more comparable to the situation in Japan during the Second World War now at that time every Japanese person was an economic criminal strictly speaking the reliance on the black market in Japan was even higher than it is in North Korea today those very same housewives and salarymen who um, circumvented the law, who ran away from the economic police, uh, you know, who broke the economic rules at every turn, were the same Japanese who were prepared to give their lives for the state um, because the economic sphere for them was not ideologically charged in the same way that, say, traffic violations are not ideologically charged for a South Korean. Um, so there is a, a lot of free room there. Now, at the same time, The government is very wary of letting things go too far. And of course, just as the Japanese economic police used to rush into the black markets and arrest everybody who looked young enough to fight or young enough to be working in a factory or on a farm, the North Korean police will do that too. They will sporadically engage in crackdowns um, because you cannot keep a military first country going um, unless you allocate uh, your labor resources um, in in a logical way. Um, So there's room there for reform, but we should not make the mistake of thinking that economic reform is going to bring about political change too. It did that in those communist countries because the economy was central to the legitimacy of the state and you could not reform the economy without essentially proving the foolishness of communism. And in North Korea, it's a very, very different story. So I think in answer to your question, we're going to see more economic reforms, but as those economic reforms – Um, have have a bad effect on, on, say, social morale as they uh, lead to a certain looseness in public morals, the North Korean state is always going to try to counter that um, by ratcheting up the tension. Uh, It's always going to maintain this war atmosphere, and it needs provocations, it needs tension with the outside world in order politically to pay for the economic reform, so to speak. So I do think this cycle is going to continue as I've said before, until North Korea goes too far and brings the might of, of the United States and South Korea down upon.
0: And do you judge that North Korea might go too far in terms of ratcheting up uh, tensions? It depends really on who is in power in South Korea, because um,
1: the South Korean left, um, I put the word left in inverted commas, because it's not left by my standards, I consider myself left. And what you have here in South Korea really is is uh, just a, a, just extreme nationalists or pro North Korean nationalists and anti North Korean nationalists. But if you if you have pro North Korean nationalists back in power in the Blue House, um, they would be probably willing to put up with five or six Yan Yon-Pyong Island uh, bombardments before they actually you know raise their voice to Pyongyang. Uh, whereas you know if you had somebody like Park Geun Hye in, in the Blue House, you might have a different kind of reaction. The question is whether the North Koreans are are able really to judge how far they can go. They've done a very, very clever job so far of just going far enough. They seem to have um, Washington's number and Seoul's number as well, and they seem to have realized that the South Koreans do not consider the integrity of their state important enough to go to war for. I think they would only support a war if their own personal livelihood uh, was in danger. And I'm not sure the North Koreans are ever going to go that far. What they are dreaming of in North Korea is of bullying South Korea into um, ever more abject submission until they can achieve the sort of confederation that they've been dreaming of for decades now. In other words, some kind of a a parliament or some kind of a a, a body that um, combines representatives, an equal number of representatives from South and North Korea and they want that to move into some kind of power sharing, of course, with the end result that South Korea would be peacefully subjugated. But I believe this is the the final victory that Kim Jong-un talks about.
0: With uh, regards to information going into North Korea, um, do you think this has capacity to lead to any real changes? A lot of people in D.C. talk of hope of You know, some kind of Arab spring that they can stimulate through sending untold amounts of balloons across the DMZ, for example.
1: Well, I mean, my problem, of course, is is a lot of what is put in those balloons and sent across the border. Uh, Again, these balloons are are written, of course, the, the balloon messages are written under the assumption that this is a failed communist state and that we can appeal to the North Koreans with a sort of logic with which we riled up the Eastern Europeans. You know, you think of Reagan saying to Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That message was, of course, directed at the people of East Europe because we knew that they were really frustrated people and they were just itching to get out and travel and see the rest of the world and so on. What we failed to realize with North Korea is that when we talk openly of reform and so on, um, you know, to to talk of reform with the North Koreans, that implies that North Korea is broken, um, that it's a failed state. And that's not how the North Koreans see things at all. That's not even how average North Koreans see things. That kind of thing is very counterproductive. As for the flow of information into North Korea, remember, we're dealing here with a nationalist state. I I, I never tire of reminding people um, that in South Africa, in apartheid South Africa, where I I spent my high school years, um, Bob Marley was hugely popular, as was Bill Cosby, among white racists who believed the best solution to the race problem in South Africa was to fence in all the blacks in reservations and to let them starve to death. To take an example that's closer, both in time and geographically, to the one we're talking about, let's look at South Korea. You've had a steady influx of Japanese culture since the mid-1990s, and anti-Japanese sentiment has actually risen in that time. So nationalism, ideologically speaking, is a very, very different animal from communism, and it's much more impervious uh, to the flow of outside information. A, a, A ridiculous amount of childish fuss has been made in the media about the appearance of Minnie Mouse. Um, at at a a theater um, performance that Kim Jong-un attended. Now, that would be hugely important if this were a communist country because to the communists, Mickey Mouse was a symbol of American capitalism and so forth. But far-right states, military first states, have always taken a a, a much easier view of that kind of innocuous um, foreign culture. Mickey Mouse was painted on the side of Luftwaffe airplanes in the Second World War And and Minnie Mouse and and these Disney characters have been popping up in Pyongyang for the past 10 years. It's not even a new phenomenon. I mean, uh, you can go onto YouTube and and see a video of Kim Jong-il in 2010 looking at an apartment uh, and a a bed inside it, which has a huge Minnie Mouse doll on it. And he's standing right next to the doll. Um, So I really get frustrated when I see these so-called serious newspapers and, and magazines Focusing on the trivial in North Korea and not realizing that the country is still in full-on militarization mode on Monday Or a few days ago the the party organ um, Said you young people in North Korea who have never set foot on South Korean soil yet grab your bayonets Um, Now I I agree not too much should be made of this, but that is the brunt of North Korean culture That's the bulk of it. And I think our media are doing uh, American citizens is a very grave disservice by focusing on trivia instead of that sort of thing.
0: So you seem to be suggesting that there is, you know, I guess some relative amount of acceptance, if not satisfaction within North Korea, maybe through uh, through this, this, this nationalism you're talking about. What do you then think of uh, human rights NGOs, for example, that talk up this crisis in north korea that we're, we're currently uh, witnessing and
1: i have great sympathy for the human rights organizations that work with north korea i know many of those people personally and and uh, your heart just goes out to these people i mean they've, they've sacrificed their livelihoods and everything to get the message out and i don't understand why many of them bristle at at um at my assertion which i stand by um, that the vast majority of North Koreans support this state, not because they have no choice, but because they genuinely believe that it's a good state. Because as far as I see it, if you have two, 200 people in a prison camp or 20,000 people in a prison camp, it doesn't matter. The country has a serious human rights problem. When I say a prison camp, I mean a political prison camp. Um, remember, there were only about 5,000 political prisoners in the Soviet Union when that place went down. Uh, so North Korea does have a serious human rights problem, what I object to um, is the hyperbole that many of these NGOs engage in. I must say, I'm a little bit tired after 15 years of these heart-rending videos that show me 15-year-old footage of babies starving to death. Um, and I'm a little bit tired of uh, these these hyperbolic comparisons of North Korea to the, to the Holocaust and so on. Um, let's remember, you have... Uh, an unfortified northern border which even children can cross um, and people who are forcibly repatriated to North Korea serve on average about two to three months um, in, in, in a detention facility and I, I have it from North Korean refugees that um, the treatment is much worse in Chinese prisons now than it is in these North Korean detention facilities um, and yet not only do you not have a mass exodus of people like we saw Um, when the Berlin Wall came down, but um, the North Korean population is actually growing at a higher rate uh, than the South Korean population is. The birth rate is higher in North Korea. And these things, I think, are quite good indicators of um, how positive people feel about the future in North Korea. And to simply assume that North Korea is only surviving because it has such a good lock on its people is ridiculous. Remember, pure coercion is not only a technologically very demanding thing for a state to engage in economically, it's also an enormous burden. North Korea simply does not have the money to uh, to to take the uh, the East German road to maintaining public uh, uh, stability. North Korea has to inspire its people, and so far it's done that. I think we are so blinkered by our own economy first ideology that we don't understand that the economy is not the first thing for everybody. Sure. Um, When people are starving to death, they want to eat and they can think of nothing else. But once they've they've secured a certain basic um, subsistence and they're living okay, then what becomes more important to them, according to social psychologists, is the need to give some kind of significance to their lives. Let's remember, that's why East Germany collapsed. It did not collapse because the East Germans were starving or because they wanted to eat bananas or even because they wanted freedom. That state collapsed. Because it had failed to give the people a reason to live. Those people in East Germany, and I know I, li- I used to visit East Germany on many occasions, they felt that they, their sacrifices had no more meaning. Because communism had collapsed, had failed, even by communism's own standards. Okay? Um, so in those conditions, naturally you're going to have uprisings. In North Korea, where you have an enormous level of state spirit, even among North Korean refugees, a South Korean I talked to a couple of days ago at a conference in Seoul said that, you know, he's amazed by the state spirit that these North Korean refugees show. They can complain about Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, and yet they still feel that the North Korean state is the more legitimate state of the two Koreas. And uh, to get back to the Japanese example, all those people who were violating the economic laws and, and, and getting everything on the black black market and corrupt, uh, bribery, all that stuff, um, those Japanese were still ready to defend the state until the end. And I don't see any real uh, change in state support in North Korea that would give rise to the hope of an Arab Spring. Uh, quite apart from which, though, Chad, I do I I don't really understand the the hope for an Arab Spring. Um, I think again that this is failed communist um, model speaking because I do not believe that the North Koreans are going to go as peacefully as the communists did. Um, And if we really want to encourage an Arab Spring, we need to be ready to assume the moral responsibility of the bloodshed that would very likely ensue in the case of such an uprising. Do we really want to encourage that sort of thing with balloons or not? I don't know.
0: And, you know, this support for the regime, though, you, you say it exists. Um, do you think that the, the, the sort of blackout of foreign information is like a critical part of this support? Or do you think that, for example, if we had a some kind of collapse and instant reunification tomorrow and North Koreans knew everything, that they would still be this support for their former regime there, you know, upon a reunification situation, do you think we would see North Koreans tearing down these statues of Kim Il-sung within a year or two? No, or? quite,
1: no, no, quite the opposite. Um, let me answer that part first, because it's really in a way, the more interesting thing I believe, uh, and, and, uh, let me go on the record as, as being the first person to predict this, that, um, after, unif- reunification, um, The North Koreans are not only going to hold on to those statues, and they're going to hold on to them by saying, hey, you guys, you've got your statues of Park Jong-hee and Kim young sam and so on. We want to keep our statue of this guy. Um, But Kim Il-sung's stock is also going to rise in South Korea as well, because Korean nationalism depends on nothing so much as the perception that the colonial period was the worst period in Korean history. Once you acknowledge that Koreans were treated more brutally that more Koreans were executed and killed, um, uh, that everything was a lot worse under Kim Il-sung, that nationalism comes crashing down. And that cannot be. So you're going to see an awful lot of revisionism here in South Korea too, in in Seoul, uh, by the nationalist left, um, according to which it's probably going to go like this. Here we have North Korea just about to reform, on the verge of an economic miracle the like of which the world has never seen, and, um, you know, the Americans and the South Korean right wingers um, deviously brought this country crashing down. So now we'll never see this wonderful uh, unified Korea that, that, that could have been, instead of which we've got this horrible, tainted Korea. That's going to happen. Now, to go back to your first question about the blackout, there is no blackout anymore to speak of. Um, this is my big bone of contention with my good friend, uh, my best friend, really, in, in the North Korea Uh, watching scene uh, andre lankov because for the past 15 years andre has been saying look when they find out when they finally find out that the south is economically better off they're going to turn their back on their system of course andre is it was raised in the soviet union and it's perhaps natural to think that way Um, and when i say to him look they do know he says yeah but they don't really know yet they haven't really felt it yet in their bones well um come on i mean in in the year 2001 uh, the North Korean government began publicly admitting that South Korea is better off economically. Okay, um, They began to spin that in their own way, I write about that in my book, uh, I guess people who are listening can look to that for reference. They found easy ways to explain that because for a nationalist, the economic superiority of the rival state is not really such a big deal, it's not a big problem. We should be under no illusions as to the extent to which North Koreans are familiar with the living standard of the neighborhood down there as they call South Korea. Everybody knows, everybody. And yet they still stick to their state for the most part. Uh, I don't want to deny that there are thousands and thousands of people who run away from that country every year, but let's keep in mind the vast majority of those people are from the most impoverished, least propagandized part of the country, namely the extreme northeast. We are yet to see a significant number of defections from the mainstream even, let alone the elite.
0: And do you think, as uh, some suggest, that North Korea might still be around in, in say, thirty years from now?
1: What needs to be taken into account really is that North Korea's future depends to a large extent on South Korea's future. Um, when people like Bruce Cumming sort of sort of um, point to North Korea's survival as, as as proof that they were right about about what a you know what a wonderful place that is in in comparison to what we think it is, uh, what they forget is that South Korea kept that country going, and that South Korea continues to want to keep that country going and is really just looking for an opportunity to start pumping money back into the place. Uh, If the South Koreans continue to do that um, and and to to postpone unification as long as possible, I think it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility that North Korea could limp out of this decade into the following decade. But I I still think that regardless of how the economy improves, um, North Korea is always going to be under pressure to – flex its military first muscles now the fascist states they had to keep invading countries basically to hold on to public support north korea has figured out a code so to speak according to which um, it can hold on to public support by securing minor victories every year or two the problem is that the people expect a bigger victory every year they they're suffering from a kind of missile fatigue or a nuclear test fatigue and they want to see, I think, more drastic things. And the propaganda apparatus in North Korea is being very rash by talking increasingly of a final victory. The North Koreans know what that means. They know that means unification. And I don't believe that the North Korean government can keep postponing that final victory indefinitely and expect the people to, to continue making economic sacrifices indefinitely. Sooner or later, they're going to have to start, start um, doing stuff. So I expect the provocations to continue. I can't identify what kind of provocations exactly or where they will take place, but I expect them to continue and to escalate until they reach a point where um, even the most accommodationist South Koreans are going to have to fight back. And I think that's going to be the end of the regime.
0: All right. And just to round up, do you think you'll still be uh, watching North Korea in 10 years or have grown fatigue will have set in by then? Yeah, it's starting to set in right now, Chad. Um, but um, um,
1: I don't want to be doing this in 10 years. I hope
0: somebody will will put me out of my misery if I am. Yeah. I do hope you enjoyed today's podcast. You can download other episodes at our podcast website, which you can find at keia.podbean.com. That's keia.podbean.com. We'd also really appreciate if you could leave us some feedback using the comment system on either the Podbean website or directly on our iTunes page. If you'd like to suggest a candidate or topic for a future episode, be sure to drop me an email at ocarol at keia.org. That's O-C-A-R-R-O-L-L at K-E-I-A Thanks for tuning in and I hope you can join us next time.